Welcome to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, with Sandra Banyats and Phoebe Maris. Hi, I'm Phoebe. And my name is Sandra. And you're listening to Beyond the Ivory Tower, Conversations on Journalism, a podcast series where we want to talk about current research in journalism. Traditional actors don't like to see them as journalists, and some scholars also don't like to see them as journalists, but I do. So that's, that's my work. So the person you just heard is Scott Eldridge, who is an assistant professor at the University of Groningen, and you will hear more from him in a second. He visited Vienna a couple of months ago, and we took the chance to talk with him about new actors and boundaries of journalism. We had a really engaging and pretty long discussion with him about who these new actors are, why we need to study them and how we can stretch the boundaries of journalism. My name is Scott Eldridge. I'm with the, at the Research Center of Media and Journalism Studies at the University of Groningen. Uh, and I came to my research area, which is digital journalism and uh, particularly sort of problematic digital journalism. In the summer of 2010, when I was watching the WikiLeaks story unfold, uh, and in the eight years since, that's more or less been at the center of my, my work. Uh, yeah. WikiLeaks has been in the spotlight and criticized by various societal actors like politicians, but also journalists. So what is so problematic about these new evolving digital actors? One of the things, I mean, WikiLeaks is a great example of this, but it's not alone. In uh, new actors or people who are doing things differently online that see themselves as journalists, describe themselves as journalists, see their work as journalism, but aren't seen that way by others. Uh, and part of the reason they aren't seen that way by others is they are kind of Uh, jerks in their approach at times, uh, in language or in who they'll challenge and what they'll uncover, uh, this sort of um, take-no-prisoners approach to uh, unveil unveiling or revealing truths. So they're the things that I'm interested in, they're the actors I'm interested in, um, and they're also problematic because they are back and forth. I mean, WikiLeaks is a great example of this in 2010 and 2011. Uh, People were willing to see them as journalism more and more. And now, if we look at the, the end of the 2016 US presidential election, it's a much different picture. So they're really challenging to explore, however you look at them, because of changing identities. Others, blogs, online sites, which also fall into this category of uh, problematic actors or interlopers, are a little easier. They're a little more consistent. Uh, but they still take a very sharp tone that leaves them more often than not outside the journalistic field. Um, traditional actors don't like to see them as journalists, and some scholars also don't like to see them as journalists, but I do. So that's, that's my work. Is it that some scholars don't see them as journalists? I mean, what exactly is this tension between who we know to be traditional journalists and these new actors? Yeah, well, that's a question with many, many answers. Um, one of the reasons that they're not 
scholars may not be likely to see them as journalists is the fact that they move back and forth, right? They are not consistently one thing, uh, and that's a, that's a part of it. So a WikiLeaks falls out often, and so why should we appreciate it as journalism when it's journalism? And I think this multiple identity thing makes them more reflective of social actors. You know, lots of media actors step in and out of different roles. Even traditional journalism goes between entertainment, political activism, and just you know, straight up news and information. So this takes that uh, into a digital realm. That is, maybe it's more difficult to map, uh, but it's, I think, more reflective of what's going on. Another reason that they may be left outside of research is that a lot of research looks for journalism as performing civic or sort of these normative uh, for democracy type roles. And that is certainly at the core of a lot of journalism, and it's even at the core of some of these peripheral actors' work. But we may need to reimagine what that is at times. Uh, we look at very traditional information for the goings-on of society or for voting or for civic life, and that looks like one type of thing and that covers one type of thing. But journalism has always been catering to many different types of publics, and publics now have many different types of needs. They imagine their civic needs differently. We see that in the communities online. If we think, if we think of journalism as informing society and informing publics, uh, yes, that takes the traditional roles of governance, following on the, the goings-on of the world in small and big ways, our, our societies. But online, we also see that publics are small, fractured, uh, tight-knit, skeptical, cynical, and those publics are being catered to sometimes more effectively by these online actors. And so we have to break, and you know, journalism scholarship has done this, media scholarship has done this, break from our idea that there's one public or one society. Uh, and these online actors are very much doing that. So they imagine their civic role differently. It's not an easy, always an easy uh, balance to make, but they do it differently. That is different than saying, you know, the traditional normative vision of journalism as uh, central to democracy and a pillar to democracy. You know, if you look for all of that in any one media actor, you might struggle to find it. And that's, that's very much true for these. So I think that's part of the challenge for scholarship. If there isn't one public, should we then be speaking of one journalism? Right, because audiences are increasingly accessing a whole repertoire of media to get a sense of what is going on in the world. And journalists also try to engage with them, which demands that they also become more personal. But this does make things a little bit murky, right? So then who and what do we study when we want to study journalism? I have a, a wide umbrella view of journalism. So it my typical answer when someone says is this journalism is well let's start with yes okay so even in in the research i've done in the stuff i've written my starting point is if they say they are journalists then that is an uh, entry point 
and then we can evaluate are they good or bad at meeting that criteria. Uh, so WikiLeaks says it's doing journalism. Okay, let's judge it on that on that basis and all the things that we know and associate with journalism and all of the ways it describes its work as journalism and the performances within, okay, we can start to unpack it. Sometimes it's good at performing journalism. Other times it's not. Okay, then we have a more nuanced picture of it. We don't, it's not a switch. You're not either in or out in all the time because then we would, everyone that we normally consider a journalist or any organization that we normally consider as journalism would also be subject to those whims. So the New York Times, well, when Jason Blair, you know, made up most of his stories in 2003, out you go. And that doesn't make sense. So why can't we bring that sort of um, critical reflection to how we look at these new ones, including really uh, popular brand type sites? And when their faults and failings happen, can we see them as faults and failings uh, that may or may not lead to the demise of a, a site. And Gawker is a good case of that. Long time success, uh, very problematic demise. Um, even more problematic for other reasons, not just that they uh, invaded the privacy of Hulk Hogan, but also that the case to take them down was funded by Peter Thiel, who is there's a long backstory, but he's a conservative venture capitalist who hates Nick Denton, who started Gawker, and he also supports Donald Trump. He's on his advisory committees and also is trying to get New Zealand's citizenship somehow. Yeah, it's a very weird, weird story. Uh, but all right, so there's a fault. Gawker was held to account for it, ultimately went into bankruptcy. Um, the, the site itself is static. It's not going anywhere. Uh, but it's it's other media organizations like Deadspin and Jezebel and Jalopnik and its other sites have gone on because Fusion bought them up and they've succeeded. So maybe that's a good story of where faults and failings can be accounted for. Um, we would argue, or you know, classic arguments would be free market of society, free market of ideas, uh, hold those that get it wrong to account, let them fail if they fail, let them succeed if they can right their ship. And that would be you know the, what the New York Times did. Um, in all of that, then yes, okay. Let's let's say brand journalism, uh, celebrity journalism, entertainment journalism, uh, journalistic personalities, right? Where you follow the individuals uh, because of who they are, their own capital. That that's perfectly valid in my book. Um, and yes, under my broad umbrella approach to seeing journalism. But at the end of the day, who do audiences actually go to when they look for what they perceive to be legitimate and credible news? And is it a fair assumption that audiences might still seek out the information that comes from the big names? True, but could not also depend on the type of news. Um, I mean, for example, every big name will cover an earthquake, but something of potentially less relevance for a broader society like Gamergate might be only covered well by these new actors. So, I mean, Gamergate, there again, Gawker has an interesting story because they covered it, but they were called out in sort of the, the back channel communication. They had a, a site for a short while called sausage.gawker.com where you could see the sausage made. Uh, and in the conversation between the journalists and editors that you could see in that space, Though there was a, a 
sort of a public discussion, and this was later made more prominent on Gawker itself about their own, you know, not taking it seriously around Gamergate. Um, also, with the the Me Too stuff, you know, Jezebel had things on Louis C.K. years before the New York Times did. So, what is what is it about these actors now? There's ongoing stuff that I'm working on that's trying to explore why they're succeeding, and that's part of it. Um, and Sandra, to your point about about you know verification and do we go to the the big names? And some of us do instinctively, uh, and some of that is this self-selecting practice, right? People who are interested in news and journalism or are well-read, not just academically, but well-read uh, in general about what goes on in news and journalism may have a little more skepticism about everything they read. And so they used to seek out other sources, but we're not everyone. And it's this self-selecting crowd uh, that can can be both a good and a bad thing. It can show us because we are willing to be skeptical, we start to compare what we get on Facebook or a blog with what we see in a newspaper, but not everyone is there. And as you said, Phoebe, you know, political news is one space where we don't get this uh, and where people may just latch on to what feels right. Um, it's the it's sort of my grandmother's phrase whenever something is said that she doesn't agree with or doesn't want to believe is well i don't know which is her way of saying i'm i hear you're saying something but i choose not to engage with it and so when we think about why people should or shouldn't or do or don't go check something out we also have to consider that they they may not want to that it gratifies a certain end uh, following and during the 2016 election in the u.s and with all the discussion of, of fake news being this right-wing or uh, Republican-oriented thing, it was also a left-oriented thing. And you would see plenty of people, you know, friends of mine and family members of mine, who would share things that were incredibly dubious on the left liberal spectrum because it felt good. Uh, and so feeling good or sort of having your own beliefs confirmed, what Van Zonen calls the epistemology of news consumption is something that comes into this. Um, personally, I'm not a huge advocate of seeing either journalism studies as needing to solve this problem because it suggests that the problem is with journalism, perhaps, rather than just a reflection of society having you know its own textures and faults, failings and problems. Uh, and I'm also not a huge ad so I'm not a huge advocate that research needs to figure this out. I think research needs to explore it and understand it uh, and shed light on it as always, but solve it may not be the right thing because what we see when we solve or silence or marginalize uh, voices that we think aren't good enough to count as journalism, I keep using air quotes and it's a podcast. Um, when when we do that with things and we we marginalize them well they don't disappear they just have a a different space that they take part in so breitbart is a great example of that uh, and there are worse examples of it um there are sort of if you look at reddit reddit pushed off the alt-right and then the, they set up their own thing called vote uh, which is nasty in every way uh breitbart 
you know, these efforts to push Breitbart out of certain places to, or to shut them down won't change the narrative. It will just treat it as marginal. So my challenge to myself is to engage with these things and actually explore them and see what we can do about understanding them rather than dismissing them out of hand. Scott raises a good point here because scholarship has often assumed that alternative voices and counterpublics facilitate democracy and engagement. But once we start talking about counterpublics that are right-wing, the same assumption doesn't quite hold up. But then again, who are we to make these judgments? Or are we just being normative? You're right. This idea of fake news or acceptable news or what is or isn't journalism can be very normative, right? And so we look... If we base our distinctions of what journalism is around what it always has been, we end up with a, a narrow, perhaps easily applied measure of what journalism is that leaves out these other things. So one of the arguments I've made in several different pieces is if we break it down to different types of criteria. So if we look at, is it uh, information based on fact, delivered to a public in their interest, um, provided with context and analysis or expertise, and broadly speaking, for the conduct of society, democratic watchdog, whatever you might call it, but in some measure, the conduct of society, then we start to see journalism emerging in different places. And so we can look at those types of things. Um, I also explore, as I already mentioned, you know, this idea of identification. So if you say you're a journalist, that's an, an entree to exploration. If you don't, it's not. So the one of the debates that always goes on is what John Stewart or Trevor Noah does on The Daily Show or John Oliver with Last Week Tonight or uh, any of these types of sites or shows rather is what they do journalism. Well, it does provide information to a public. It does give some, you know, fact-driven context uh, and, you know, through their production some level of expertise. But each and every one of those names distance themselves from the idea of journalism. It's satire, it's commentary, it's comedy. And so it, it creates a, a sort of problematic division, but because they are explicitly, in most cases, not describing themselves as journalism and are describing themselves as something else, I think analytically uh, it's difficult and perhaps even unfair to hold them to the standards that we might look for in other types of journalism because they're distancing themselves from it and putting themselves in the category of any other number of categories of informative mediators. Spin, perhaps, political speech, perhaps, uh, public intellectualism on some level, there's a degree of that going on, but we don't need to call it journalism. Uh, so we can disassociate some of these things that look like, smell like, but aren't journalism. Um, and that's, you know, that's one way of measuring it. Another is to look at how they express in their work what they're doing. Is it towards uh, political persuasion or is it towards some other type of information? Uh, how do they address these types of activities? And you can find it in the language they use reporting, exporting, um, or exploring, investigating, you know, these, there are markers of what is journalistic or not. And then you take a holistic view. Breitbart, for instance, um, and I write about this a little in my book, where Breitbart, when it covered WikiLeaks uh, not being given 
the blue tick seal of approval on Twitter. A very bland, but very you know traditionally journalistic type story. It has sources. It has quotes. It uh, you know inverted pyramid. Who, what, why, where, when, why, how. You know all that stuff is there. And so you might say, okay, in that moment, this looks journalistic, but you also take the holistic view. Most of what Breitbart does is trying to take facts and manipulate them towards certain ends. So when it covers climate change, it famously used a Weather Channel video and described it as something else. You know, it described a, an El Nino or La Nina, I forget which, effect as proving that climate change doesn't exist when it, you know, in the video itself, which they got from weather.com, it explicitly says, no, this is not that. So you take a big lens and you look at these examples in context. Um, it's, I mean, it makes it interesting work, not necessarily easy work, because you have to always be measuring these things and maybe looking at, at, at the grand arc, you know, are they mostly one or mostly the other to get a better picture of what these organizations or actors are doing. So rather than relying on outdated definitions, we should rethink the measures that we use to study journalistic actors. And as you just heard, Scott named quite a few of them, but we noticed that they don't include the perspective of an audience. Yeah, someone reading Breitbart or viewing John Oliver might well think of these actors as journalistic. So shouldn't that also be a dimension to look at? I mean, in a, in a way. I think actually not even in a way, I think in a large way, you need to consider publics in this. And it goes through lots of different ways. Um, you can look at public expectations, for instance, or public perceptions of the roles these actors are playing. And in that case, there might be a really high measure of uh, public role perception that they see John Oliver as journalism, or they see Breitbart as journalism. So. My argument in, in the book I made is that take that as one of six different things you measure. Identity, I'm not going to remember all six, I'll just own up to that right now. Identity, expectation, perception, performance, and realization, and intention. <laughs> uh, and on all of those, so, you know, intention can be persuasion. Uh, performance can be the language that shows that they're doing something journalistic. Realization is when a story that starts on Breitbart or starts on WikiLeaks is then covered in, and built upon by other actors within and without of the field's core. Uh, so there are lots of measures. So what you might have in that, in that example is a really high measure of uh, audience role perception that they see these actors as journalists and a really low identification and a really low intention. So you end up with a skewed picture of what they're doing. They're, the holistic picture is like a, a wonky shape rather than a nice solid graph. I put these in sort of like a six angle uh, radar graph. And so when you do that, you go, oh, okay, I see what's going on. It matters, but it doesn't outweigh everything else. At the same time, when you're trying to figure out how something that you see on all these other measures, intention, identity, performance, etc., when you're trying to understand how they measure up on a public side, 
you can look, obviously you can look at audiences, polls, focus groups, interviews, but one thing you can do is start to explore the comment threads underneath these stories and you can see confirmation or you can see that, like for instance, the, the blog Eschaton, which is a left-leaning news blog, um, famous for taking down a few senators of various uh, persuasions in the US uh, and being really critical on politics and media. And their posts, Duncan Black's posts, are very brief more often than not. But the brief little clues in his posts are then engaged with by the audience and really the conversation takes off from there. So you can see that audience, that public perception, you can understand and, and see it as sort of a dynamic rather than just a speaking to, it's a speaking with, which is a really interesting uh, aspect of what these online actors are doing. But why this big lens? If people don't identify as journalists, why should we insist on studying them as journalists? It's, it's two things in my mind. Um, it matters on an academic level. I think there's a degree of humility that we need to have, which is uh, saying that we as scholars may be the most read in the subject or relatively the most read in a subject or, or the best equipped to link it to theory and method and analysis to explore these things. But we also need to be able to open up our, our minds to considering new things. So there's that degree which I am deeply wedded to because I myself come out of a very traditional journalistic background, like writing obituaries for newspapers and reporting on my hometown and covering politics in Washington. And you know that is something I'm, I came through my BA with. And so in my own research, I've been challenging myself to be challenged. And I think that's something that scholarship is, should do um, and is better better for doing. Uh, if we open up, if we think that journalism may be something more than it always has been, we may be better equipped to explain the ups and downs of media, the rises and falls in trust and the developments that we can't quite anticipate. So I think there's a degree of responsibility and humility on the scholarship side. The other thing is that label of journalism uh, is something sought for a reason. Uh, new online actors, in the same way, small little newspapers and alternative pirate radio and all the rest, they, they seek that recognition because that recognition carries a certain status conveyed and sort of determined by social norms, you might call it, or just the, the long arc of history. So if we say, okay, you new actor who provides information based on fact to a public in their interest with context and expertise are something different, we know that difference is power and we, we are saying to them, regardless of what you're looking for, we're not giving it to you. We're giving you something different. Um, and I've heard that argument like really overstretched where people would say, oh, it's the same thing as saying uh, what they said to, to gay couples, you can have civil unions, but you can't have marriage. And it's a parallel, but it's not exactly the same. Let's not overdo it. But there's, there's that same thread of power that you're saying to someone who looks for recognition that their recognition is not given. Uh, and it's not given because they're different. Uh, and I think that can, be, that can be problematic. And also, it, I mean, the argument from Bourdieu and fields and practice theory would say, 
what that does is it allows the field's dominant vision, which has been to, to exist unassailed, when we have plenty of examples of things that show that that dominant vision is agreed upon complicities or smoothed over differences rather than uh, a strong uh, definition that should maintain. But we still couldn't quite drop it. I mean, it's not that we disagree, but just for argument's sake, why try force what is new into an old frame as opposed to just letting it emerge as something entirely new that over time might gain its own societal power? For, for sure. I mean, there are, there are those arguments, right? So one of the arguments would be that we stop saying, we stop talking about journalism and digital journalism as something uh, distinct, as you know, suggesting that journalism is a, a thing that people seek or find, and we start talking about news that is interwoven into a much more complex digital media ecology. This is something that Marcel Brusma uh, has argued and continues to argue that we we can look at these things in the more dynamic ways they play out. You know, people encounter news; they don't necessarily encounter journalism. Right, so we can we could look at it as disassociating the objects from the field. That said, uh, we I think there's a lot of strength in looking at society through this idea of fields. Right, that we we still associate things in different types of groups. We as academics, journalists within a journalistic field, uh, journalism within a certain social societal constructive space. Uh, socio-functional informative role you know all the different things that are expected of certain types of societal actors and in that expectation or in that anticipation we we can't just give that up or you know unless we have some giant reset button because we've grown ourselves within societies that have had uh, you know weaker or stronger demonstrations of journalism that have led to weaker or stronger expectations of them. Now, we're relatively old. Um, I'm relatively old, maybe, in that regard. In, in that new generations, young people now, may not have the same anticipation. So in 20 years, teenagers now, 20 years from now, will look at these things differently. And, and then we, as scholars, will be better equipped if we've geared ourselves up to look at change and flux and uh, you know, boundaries and peripheries as they, as they have continued to change. But I don't think we're at a point now where we can just say, let's, let's just redraw the, the paradigms or let's just make everything either journalism or not and you know, stop trying to, to wrap things in because of the power associated with that label and with the functions performed. I mean, even legally, the power associated with being called journalism is much different than the power associated with being called a public uh, relations person or an NGO communicator or a blogger, which, you know, is always described as a 400 pound person in their mom's basement. Right. That to really we have a sort of like social defamation of different types of media actors that isn't warranted in my mind, but is certainly part of the, the power dynamic that goes on. We should not only consider these new actors as journalists or similar to journalism because of their lack of power. 
They are in fact also challenging existing journalistic norms and practices. For instance, if we look at lifestyle journalism, bloggers have actually changed the way of reporting. And I, th I think you're right, right? So the online actors have, we have loads of demonstrations where they have changed the way traditional actors work. And some of that has been an influence thing. They succeed and they're either swallowed up. I mean, look at Nate Silver's 538, which was a statistical-oriented news, well, first baseball, and then later news and politics blog, swallowed up by the New York Times and then later by ESPN. That is someone, you know, influencing, doing something that is seen as worthwhile and then brought into the fold. Uh, so that's sort of like appropriating the good things from outside and bringing them inside, which is good for some levels. Uh, on another level, it is this normalization, which uh, as Marcel Brosman and Todd Graham described normalization, it is the, the sort of smoothing over of the challenge or the negating of the challenge that the original uh, thing was meant to do. So when you look at Uh, journalists tweeting, blogging, doing Facebook live streams, things like that, they're grabbing this outsider act and making it inside and sort of washing over uh, any sort of alternative narrative that might have come from the outsider. So you, you have that going on as well. And interesting, one of the interesting things I think is that what you continue to have even if they may in their heart of hearts aspire to work for a big newspaper or a big television uh, station or even just a big online outlet, a lot of these peripheral actors are doing two things at once. They are informing publics, reporting news and politics and society and culture and all the rest, but also criticizing the journalistic core, the mainstream, when it fails to do what it says it's doing. They're, they're not sort of... Um, just looking in with you know doe eyes and, and, and hopes they're also really pointed um all i mean all of the ones i've named so far gawker or eschaton or wikileaks have all been really sharp in doing this and successful uh they they not only point this but they get a lot of uptick for it uh, and that that's a uh, for me that shows that they're they're not just existing on the edge trying to get their, their way in, but actually being on the edge is an important marker of identity. They're still doing journalism, and I think in most cases, in many cases, journalism as good as what's being done in other places. Not in everything, right? So the, the war correspondency or the um, you know, deep diving uh, reports that sometimes require institutional resources are less likely to occur on these online sites. But it doesn't mean that they're not able to be as pointed, as critical, as investigatory, uh, as successful in revealing things. So there's, there's an interesting play going on. Um, and even if you, if you look at some of the most long, some of the long running, if you want to call them long running um, for a 20-ish year run, uh, peripheral actors who have succeeded at this, they're, they're not long running because they've been wrapped into the you know big players matt drudge or guido fox uh, paul staines in the uk they've done what they've done for years by owning that dual critical role um, and and don't show any signs of wanting to give it up even if the things they've done have been you know the style of matt drudge is certainly what we would see as the style of fox news or the style of breitbart 
and Guido Fox, you, you can make a case that there have been politically oriented blogs that have followed in those footsteps as well, but, but these actors are not looking to disappear. Unfortunately, we are already approaching the end of this podcast. And so, as always, we wanted to know what Scott thinks are some of the pressing questions for future journalism research. I mean, you see it already being addressed, right? So if you look at the call for ACREA or even the call for ICA for the most recent conferences, they're about voices or they're about cores and peripheries. They're about thinking differently about our objects of study. And I think, and this is something I did in a paper with John Steele, which I really enjoyed doing, where we tried to drop as many of our pre-existing ideas about journalism as possible. And just through focus groups and interactive research projects, get that information from somewhere else. You know, let the people talk to us about why they sought types of information, why a friend at the pub was as valuable as uh, the gossip on the radio or the, you know, the fact that they all, all of our participants would admit to occasionally looking at the Daily Mail, even though they despise the Daily Mail, right? That, that there's something more going on and maybe just dropping our comfort zones a little bit. So maybe research now needs to be saying, all right, this is what I know and I can hang my hat on. What don't I know? What am I uncomfortable about or uncomfortable with? And it can be really unpleasant. I mean, looking at Breitbart, there's something I'm uncomfortable with and not happy, you know, most of the time that I'm looking at it. But by exploring it, I think I'm better able to understand what's going on more broadly. So I would say the thing people need to do is just break free a little bit out of their comfort zones, do things that are challenging, whether it's looking at the unpleasant, you know, political ends of things or being willing to say, all right, well, this normative stance of what journalism is that I've held on to for X number of years, let's try to abandon it for a little while and see if I get something different. That was it for this edition. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. And if you want to know more about Scott's work, you can go to the University of Groningen webpage. And if you'd like to know more about our research, you can find us at the Journalism Studies Center at the University of Vienna. And our website is journalismstudies.univ.ac.at. There you can also find information on the rest of our team, Daniel Nölleke and Hannah Siegel, led by Volker Hanusch, and also our contact details if you'd like to get in touch. We hope you'll be around for our next podcast, where we'll be speaking with Yarif Zfati from the University of Haifa on media trust and selective exposure to news. The music you heard today comes from Blue Dot Sessions. And we also want to thank Lisa Kiesenhofer again for lending us her beautiful voice and also Radio Campus for lending us their equipment. My name is Phoebe. And I'm Sandra. Until next time. Bye. Bye.